Well, good morning. We're in the middle of a, of a series that we've been doing called This is the Way. We are just shamelessly playing off this very popular Star Wars series in order to talk about this beautiful, mysterious tribe that we belong to called the church. We started our series a few weeks ago reminding ourselves why this unstoppable church has nothing to be afraid of. And that changes our whole posture towards the world to one of faith-filled love and, and mercy and serving. We don't have to have a posture of like panic and grasping and that sort of thing, right? Last week, we talked about what a biblical view of justice uh, means for us as a church. And we talked about, you know, for 2,000 years, this was a biblical word. And so we're going to take it back. We're going to take this word back in Jesus' name. Amen. And we, so we don't have to re react allergically to notions of justice or shalom building or seeking reconciliation in each other. Today, we're going to look at the church and what it, what it means to be part of this church uh, in terms of a term, really interesting term, that the Bible gives the church. And that is the title, The Bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Um, the church is a bride. Now, that's been taught. You've, you, you've probably heard this taught in a variety of different ways. And uh, it's, it, honestly, it's kind of been made cheesy sometimes. I, I, I have heard it that way. Uh, it's usually often reserved for, like, uh, women's retreats. We're going to talk about the bride of Christ, right? Or something like that. Uh, but big news, it's for all of us. Uh, we're all the bride of Christ. It's for men and women. I would like to see one men's retreat, maybe the one, come on guys, the one's men's retreat where the theme is the bride of Christ. How about that, right? What do you think? Um, just turn, turn to a, a guy sitting next to you and go, hey, hey bro, you are the bride of Christ. Just tell one dude that you're the bride of Christ, all right, because that's what we all need today. And, and now I get it, um, for a lot of us. Being referred to as a bride can feel a little bit off. Um, whether you're a man or a woman, it, it can be a little different. Um, especially dudes can be like, wait a minute, Scott, I came here to learn how to be like a soldier in the army of God, man. I want to conquer, right? Um, and now you're telling me I'm part of a bride. Yes, yes, I am. Um, because first of all, first hear me in this, this is not a gender thing. Okay, right? Sex has nothing to do with this. The, the, Bible, the Bible uses bridal language to paint a picture, uh, but, but that doesn't mean that we have to like, get weird and like, over-sexualize this. Whether you're a man or a woman, Jesus isn't your boyfriend. He's not your fiance. He's not your husband, okay? Or whatever. Because here's the second thing. Second, like often a little thing we forget about this that we want to keep in mind. Uh, never once in Scripture are we called the brides of Christ. There's not the brides of Christ, okay? We're not all Christ's sister wives, right? We don't have a show on TLC, right? No, 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 no. It's not, it's not like that. We are always, in Scripture, referred to collectively as the bride. There's one bride, and it's all of us. The bride of Christ isn't something you individually become, it's something you really, you join. You, you, you become part of, right? You, you belong to. And so it's like our, our communal identity in relation 
to Christ. And, and I know it, for, for some of us, if you're kind of new to church, this can seem kind of weird. Um, but just stick with me. The, this identity as the bride of Christ, it speaks to something really profound. It's something very beautiful about our relationship with Jesus. It, it speaks to our intimacy and unity and this shared life that goes way beyond just practicing a religion. It's about being chosen and loved and cherished by Christ himself. And this is in a world that champions individuality to, you know, to the extremes of isolation, right? This biblical imagery really invites us into this sort of a countercultural thing that it's, it's, it's very radically communal. It's radically communal. When scripture uses marriage imagery and covenant imagery and bridal language, it, it's getting at the fact that we come together with Jesus. When we come together with Jesus, we, we give our lives to him. We are marked by his identity, right? I mean, we, we take on his name, right? It's just like if you get married, you're still you. You know, you don't lose yourself. You're still you. But now your identity becomes like expanded. There's like this creature that didn't exist before. There's a y'all, right? So when I married Mel, you know, there's still Mel and there's still Scott, but now there's, there's this thing called Scott and Mel, right? And it's this beautiful thing, right? And so in Christ, we become marked by who he is. And I mean, isn't that what we crave? Isn't that what we really crave, what we really want? Let me also just acknowledge uh, one other thing. And I know this, the topic of when you start talking about like brides and marriages, even if you're talking about something spiritual, we're not talking about, we're not, today we're not talking about physical marriage. We're not, I'm not giving you a how to be a better spouse message. That's not this. Um, but even for that, for many folks, this, it can be a painful subject, okay? Uh, and I'm guessing that every single one of us in this room, either directly or indirectly, have been uh, affected by uh, a broken marriage. We're all affected by those things. And when a marriage breaks, it is painful. It's painful to be in a marriage that's broken. It's painful to, be, to have been in a marriage that's broken. Even in a situation where like divorce was necessary, that severing of, of relationship is traumatic. And we acknowledge that. You might be here today, and when we start talking about Bride of Christ, it's painful for you for a different reason. Maybe you've had a severing of relationship, a break of relationship, but with the church, or with people in a church, like people who literally called themselves bride of Christ. And, and so for, for you, it felt like a betrayal by the church. And so when you think of the bride of Christ, sometimes that might just bring up things that breaks your heart. And um, I'm sympathetic to that. And, and some of you, I know it's taken everything within you just to darken these doors today. And I thank you so much for that courage to, to be able to do that. Or maybe you're just online and you're watching right now because that's not a step you're ready to take yet either. And I, and I sympathize with that too. And so for, for, for you, if, if marriage and weddings and all this kind of language brings up like, like a whole rat's nest of ache or something like that, I pray that God's healing comes today that today, uh, that this conversation is another step away from the pain and towards healing. May your heart that was broken be reformed today, amen, in, the, in that identity that God declares over us when he declares us his, his beloved and he says he's coming back for his bride, amen. So, all right, I think one of the best places to start in, in the scriptures to look at this language is, uh, is actually at the end. At the very, towards the, one of the last final words of the Bible, or in Revelation 21, it's describing a new heaven and a new earth, and it all being celebrated with 
surprise, a wedding, right? And now keep in mind, there's a lot of like figurative, very apocalyptic language here. But it says this in Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. There's, again, there's a lot of figurative language going on here. I'll get to, uh, Derek talked a, a good a bit about the, the sea, what that means. That was good. Um, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This also coming here at the end of scripture helps remind us of what this is all about. I mean, all of history, why we're here, this, what is the end game? It's all about where it's headed. The enduring message in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God communicating his relentless unconditional covenant love for his people. And it is a covenant that God over and over, he vows to keep even when his bride is like not keeping up their end, right? Because God considers it unbreakable. That's what this covenant is. It's unbreakable. It's completely independent of how well we hold up our end of things. You read the scriptures all the way from from his covenant with Adam, then his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with Israel, I mean, culminating with the, the, the covenant with the church through Christ, we see God entering into one covenantal relationship after another. He's moving forward this, this story of rescue and redemption and restoration and shalom through these divine covenants. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a wonderfully bizarre story I want to look at real fast. Uh, that gives us a glimpse into this never-say-quit covenant that God has made with, with us. And in, it's in the book of Hosea. We won't read it because it's just too much time, but I'm going to summarize it. Um, but hopefully, maybe some other time, we can come back and kind of spend some more time in here. But uh, God uses, in, in the book of Hosea, God uses this metaphor of marriage to really go in-depth of how he responds to us in the midst of a broken relationship. If you're not familiar with the story, the prophet Hosea, he's, he's considered one of the minor prophets, but he is instructed by God to go and take a wife, and her name was Gomer. Beautiful name, Gomer. Uh, and bless her heart, Gomer has a bit of a, of a rough past. She's had, a, she's had a rough life. I mean, uh, she, she's known for being, like all in town, she's known for being that woman, right? Okay, and Gomer, she's just, but, but Hosea is told by God to go and marry her. And Hosea obeys. He marries Gomer, and eventually what happens is she revort, re, returns to her old ways. She's unfaithful. Uh, she returns even to her old life of prostitution. And, but it turns out that God is using Hosea as a kind of like public performance art here uh, to demonstrate in this really amazingly bizarre way. He wants to demonstrate to the people of Israel his love for them, even in the midst of their betrayal of, their, of the covenant promises that he made with them. So Hosea marries her. He knows exactly what kind of person she is. He knows how utterly humiliating this is going to be, like, to everybody. Like, you know, this is just not what you do back then. And when inevitably she cheats on him, God instructs Hosea how to restore his relationship with Gomer. 
And he tells him to go and love her like the Lord loves the Israelites, though they keep returning to other gods. And it's this super powerful story. It's a very powerful story. Now, please understand this also. This is not prescriptive for marriage, right? This is not a, a prescription by God. Now, everybody, no matter how awful and abusive your marriage is, no, no, no. This is a meant to be specifically an intentionally outrageous display of God's outrageous love for his people, okay? So it's a fascinating story. We'll come back to it someday. Um, well, it goes on in the Old Testament. Go, you go through the prophetic books, and of course, there's Song of Solomon, where we see this divine love on display, and it's God's ultimate purpose, how, how he wants us to be reunited with him. And what we see consistently throughout these, these marriage scenes is that God is just relentlessly in pursuit of us, relentlessly in pursuit. And he will do whatever it takes to redeem humanity and restore that, that relationship with his beloved people. So we come eventually to the New Testament, and voila, Jesus comes, and one of the ways he refers to himself is as the groom or the bridegroom, they called it back then. And in fact, that is one of the subtle, or to them it would have been a very telling way, that he actually is claiming to be divine, right? Because that's, that's the identity of God. And so there's this time where the people are coming to Jesus, they're questioning him about uh, fasting and why his disciples don't fast like everybody else does. And Jesus responds in the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them, right? Go back then, the bridegroom, that's the life of the party. It was actually a little different in their culture, right? The, the, it was actually the groom was kind of the focus of things, right? It was the groom. How are the guests going to fast when the groom is with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. We're in that day. And on that day, they will fast. So this is wedding language. Later, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, he was preaching and he's assuring people that he was not the bridegroom, but rather he was, he called himself the friend who attends the bridegroom, which in our language today, we would say the best man, right? And uh, in one place, John says, uh, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. And by this, he's referring to all the people who are now beginning to follow Jesus. And those people would eventually be called the church. They would be the church. And that's Christ's spiritual bride who stand by his side and, and, and invite other people into this, this whole bride thing. Saying, come, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take free gift of the water of life. So the church, the bride is meant to stand with Jesus at his side in this invitational way, inviting others to come and share in this unity with Christ. Amen. Now, all of this language that we're talking about, we're talking about this, it's first century Jewish wedding language. And I mean, Oh, we know what a wedding is. They knew what a wedding was, but things were still a little different back then. So it's important that we kind of see the way they meant things when they write this stuff, because it's not exactly the same as a, a 21st century American wedding. Um, so it might be helpful to look at a few of their traditions. In, in the first century, in a first century Jewish marriage, of course, you got the bride and the groom. But first, bef way before the wedding day, there were some other things that happened first, and there would be a betrothal ceremony. 
It was actually be a ceremony. It was a big deal, the betrothal ceremony, where the groom would offer the bride a, a cup of wine. And here's maybe one of the one part, maybe the, one of the few parts where she had any little bit of control here because she could either take the cup and say, yes, I will betroth myself to you, or she could push it away and uh, tell him to just keep looking. Uh, but once she took that cup, once she received that cup, the couple was formally engaged, and they were betrothed to each other. And at this point, it was, it was legal and binding. Uh, they, were, they were engaged. And then the groom, interestingly enough, would tell the bride that he was going to go away for a while to prepare a place for them. <laughs> and it was customary also for a first century uh, Jewish groom to express his sincerity, to give her assurances uh, of, to his newly betrothed bride uh, by giving her a precious gift. And it was his assurance, it was her assurance that while her groom was away, he would indeed return for her. <laughs> so then, after that, he would go uh, to his father's house and he would build a home on their property and she would go usually back to her parents' house and, and she would prepare to become a wife and learn probably like skills of homemaking and things like that. Um, and then at some point, he would return for his bride and the celebration and the consummation of the marriage would happen. Now, this betrothal period, this is where we find ourselves when it comes to Jesus. We're in this betrothal period. We are in the betrothal period. We come together every week to worship. And as a community, we are saying, you and I, we are collectively bound together with Christ, right? We have received that, that cup. We said yes, right? It's even powerful. It's a, even a powerful part of the communion that we take. We've received that. And in this betrothal period, just like, just like the bride waits for her bridegroom, we wait and we find ourselves in this place where we know that Jesus has uh, declared his love for us. We've said, yes, we want to be a part of this. We want to take on his name and his likeness. And yet we are still waiting, aren't we? We're still waiting in anticipation and joy for his return to make it all good and to celebrate. And based on everything that we're reading in the scriptures today, the one key thing that I want you to take away and I want you to know and just believe in a, in a fresh new way today is that God loves you. I mean, that is the big important point here. God loves you. And, and you've heard us say that probably a whole bunch, right? You, you hear, God loves you. God loves you, right? Remember, God loves you. But when you look at this, when you look at what God has done, what he is still doing throughout history, that no matter how much we make a mess of things, no matter how individually you feel like, I'm, I don't measure up, God loves you. It's true. And it's not because we're so lovable, right? Like Mel said earlier, I mean, you're all lovable. Um, and, and I'm kind of lovable. She says, um, but it's not because of that. It's not because the church is so lovable, but it's because of who he is. It's because of who God is. He, he, he is love. God is love. It says that in 1 John. He cannot help himself. He cannot but love, right? And so we, not just as individuals, but as a body, as a community, we are loved, 
we are cherished. And that's not just generations. That's like every church on, you know, every street corner, right? Oak Ridge Baptist down the road is loved. The way, Grace Community, all the churches, you know, the, the light, the crossing, the cool, all the cool people with their fancy names. Uh, they're all, you know, they're, they're, we're all loved. All of us, uh, uh, we are all called to be the bride of Christ in such a way that our relationship with Jesus is marked by such love that we live in a way that, that lets the world know of that love. We want to let his love be known and felt to the whole world. That's our calling. That's our calling in this time of waiting. So let me ask you, how well do we do it? How are we doing? How does the church live this out? How are we doing being the bride of Christ? I think sometimes we do okay. Yeah? And other times, let's face it, we're more like a bridezilla. <laughs> Anybody ever met a bridezilla? I'm sure you weren't a bridezilla. But, but you know, they, they even made a reality show called Bridezillas. That was real creative. But, bride, you know, it's that one wedding where everybody is having a good time. Everybody's looking forward to the celebration, except for one person, right? That one person. And it's supposed to be a magical day for her, but the bride just sort of loses her mind getting caught up in the details, right? And all the minutiae of everything. And it stops being a celebration between two people and the community around them, and it just becomes all about her, right? And she becomes obsessed about the details of the dress and the cake and the flowers and the photographer and who's going to sit where and who's going to say what, who's going to walk her down the aisle, who gets to come, right? And it becomes so consuming uh, in these stories, you know, you watch these stories and they're heartbreaking because no matter how beautiful the whole thing turns out to be, uh, it is, it's actually impossible that she'll be happy, right? Or anybody near her. <laughs> uh, why? Because it's so easy for us to, to lose sight of what matters. And the church can sometimes, we can act like a bridezilla, uh, more like a, that than the bride, especially when we forget that in our case, as the bride of Christ, we are not the focus here. We are not the gatekeepers, Right? Jesus is the focus, and we forget that we are supposed to be making ourselves ready to receive Jesus, not terrorizing the world so we can be in charge of things until he gets back, right? And the church gets easily obsessed. It's just because we're people. We get easily obsessed over who's doing what and who's in, who's out. We want to hang on every little facet of control of our culture rather than, you know, letting uh, Jesus just lead us rather than being his chosen, beloved, awaiting a celebration of covenantal love. And sometimes we, we also get really preoccupied in keeping our enemies far away from the party, right? We're the bride who says, those people are not coming to my special day, right? Not them. And we forget that what we're called to do is set a table that is an invitation for all people to come and to know that they are loved and invited, right? We're called to go into the highways and the byways and invite everybody into this party. And the church, as we all know, we are capable of things of great beauty and great ugliness. We know, you know, the church is responsible for terrible things, crusades and slavery and burning heretics. 
And we, you know, even, I was even looking at the history of the Reformation. The Reformation is like these group of people who said, there's something wrong with this church. So we want to reform things. We want to get back to the Bible. So what they do, they burn the heretics that didn't agree with them. My goodness gracious. Suppressing women, forcing conversions, genocide, holy wars. That's the ancient history part. But there are elements of the church today that continue to to baffle and, and confuse and disillusion folks who are desperate to see a transcendent picture of God's hope. And instead, they, they find, you know, in many circles, many parts of the world, they find a, a religious, hypocritical, power-hungry, judgmental bunch of people who seem to be able to change their tune at the drop of a hat when it suits them, right? Or to act as if their greatest purpose is to be the wedding monitor. Amen when threatened. And it, I'll tell you, it, it may be odd to hear a, a church pastor say this, but the truth is we can't put our hope in the church. You can't put your hope in church. And I didn't discuss this with Melissa before this service. I don't, I don't tell my whole sermon to her or anything, but I feel like the Holy Spirit was saying that to her this morning, to all of us, right? Our hope is in Jesus, right? It is in Jesus. You can't put your hope in the church. Because everything else, including, but not limited to church folks, will let you down. We could just go ahead and say that. Everything will let you down. Uh, Gandhi, not a Christian, famously said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. (laughs) And and I know, as I kind of alluded to earlier, many of us who have found our way to generations... You might have an experience where you have been hurt by church in the past. And if you haven't, if you're sitting there like, I don't know what he's talking about, praise God. Hold tight. It might still happen. (laughs) Hopefully not by us, (laughs) but I can't promise that either. Um, Because the fact is you you never know who's going to hurt you because the church is, is not an organization of angels. And we're not a machine run by robots and AI, right? Uh, the greatest church, the most well-run church with the most fantastic leadership structure and the best preaching and the most beautiful singing and all the incredible programs, it, it's only as good as the people that show up. It's, still, it's just the people, right? That's the church. And people, if you're over the age of four, you may have discovered, will let you down, right? They will. And listen, I, I, I've been... Uh, I've been let down. I've been disappointed by the church in the past. I've been disillusioned. I felt betrayed and criticized and shamed. But you know what else? I've been a part of doing all that too. I have. I've let people down. I've hurt people. Uh, I've shamed people. I've let people out. I've left them out. I've made them feel like they're not good enough. I've let uh, ambition go to my head and let my leadership turn manipulative. I've let pride and the belief that I can single-handedly change the world if everybody would just listen to me and do exactly what I said. <laughs> I've let that turn me into a jerk. I have. And, and I pray every day, today still, one of my prayers in the mornings are every day for the boldness and the courage that you guys deserve in a pastor. And the reason I have to pray that is because I also struggle with the fear that I am going to say something wrong or hurt somebody, or that finally I'm going to cause the mass exodus they predicted 10 years ago. <laughs> so I still struggle with that, yeah. And, and so 
that's why I would just say, whether you go here or somewhere else, or if you're just visiting, or every pastor worth their microphone um, ought to be able to speak with confidence and faith, amen, but also in the next breath be able to admit, but I could be wrong. I really believe that, amen? <laughs> so I pray I'm always able to come up and, and courageously tell you, I was wrong. And there are sermons I have preached 12 years ago. Oh my gosh, just, yeah, like 10 years ago. I've gone back and listened to it and God, what an idiot, right? What was I, I, mean, I preached him in good faith. I was doing my best. That's just, sometimes you don't know what you don't know till you learn what you don't know. And you got a lot, a lot to learn. Um, but man, yeah. That's, but that's part of being in the church too. I, I've been bitter when other people slighted me. I've been jealous of people's success. I've responded to people's failures with piling on instead of grace and compassion. It's awful. It's gross. But you know what else I've found in the church? I have found grace and mercy from some of the most unexpected places. I've received compassion from people in the church, people filled with the Spirit of Christ, who, who his love, who... I can't even explain why they would show such grace over condemnation and forgiveness over payback. So yeah, the church is imperfect for sure, but she's also glorious. The church is a glorious thing. And when I was at a time in my life when I was running from God and I couldn't decide if, if I was mad at God or if I didn't even believe he was there, it's the church. It's ordinary, imperfect people who reflected God, who reflected Jesus, who loved me and prayed for me and welcomed me. They patiently stood there with open arms when I made my way back to God. There's, it's the people who taught me that about the Bible when I am sure I acted like I could not care less. People who imparted wisdom to me when I acted like a know-it-all jerk. People who taught me how to be a follower of Christ a friend to the friendless, who taught me and continue to teach me how to be a leader for people who just need someone there to hold a flashlight in the dark trail. Ordinary Christian people. We're talking about ordinary Christian people who love Jesus and their actions backed it up. These aren't famous people. They're not people who are ever going to have a statue in the churchyard. They're not going to be martyrs. Nobody's going to pray to their name, you know, after they're dead. They're just people. These are just regular people. That is the church. That too is the church. And it's all part of this strange, beautiful, baffling, frustrating bride of Christ that we're a part of. So how does this apply to us? I'm going to wrap this up really quickly. I'm going to give you three things. How does this apply to us? We're going to make it practical. Number one, it means we can have hope. Hallelujah. We can have hope. Um, now, yes, we are called to, to uh, seek the kingdom of God. We seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. We're called to passionately put, you know, out of our lives everything that's inconsistent with the character of God. Uh, we're called to do that. But we are not called to put our hope in how well we're doing that. You get me? Our hope is to be rooted in Jesus Christ. And for that reason, we can have hope. The Apostle Paul said, continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in what? 
The gospel. The gospel. Where's the hope? It's in the gospel. Right? And the gospel is the good news of Jesus, who reigns supreme. So you put your hope in that. Don't move one inch, Paul is saying. Not one inch from putting your hope into that. Put all your eggs into that basket. Put all your hope into that basket. Amen? So we want to do our best. We ask the Lord to grow us. But we don't put our hope into how well we're doing. We don't put your hope into how well the church is doing. And for goodness sakes, don't put your hope in how well some candidate is doing uh, or, or some party or how well America is doing or how well the economy is doing, right? Or how well things around the world are doing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is where my hope is. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, rock of ages, the one who never changes. That is where my hope is, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I take my eyes off Jesus today for one nanosecond, I get cynical. You look around and and it, it looks pretty hopeless. And actually without Jesus, it is pretty hopeless. So that's probably a very accurate way to look at things. It looks hopeless. Well, it is. Without Jesus... That's an appropriate way to feel, which is one more reason. Let's all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Number two, secondly, opting out is not an option. Okay. I hear this all the time, uh, and you probably do too, where people are like, you know what? I just quit. This, this is dumb. I, I'm not going to church. I mean, maybe I still believe in Jesus. I still believe in God. Yeah, they're great. But church is foolish. It's shallow. It's full of hypocrites. It's dumb, right? The church is yada, yada, yada. I, and I get it. I get it. I know it. I feel it sometimes, yeah, but I'm not going to fight you on that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, see, see, we're the bride of Christ. So if we're a follower of Jesus, you submit to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who, who died for this whole bozo thing called the church, right? He did. And Jesus is the one who gave his life for those filly, silly, foolish hypocrites uh, out there making you mad. And so that means that opting out is not an option for us. We're designed by God to be part of the church. That's how we're designed by God. If you're doing it alone, you're doing it the hard way, right? Nobody should walk alone. And we're the body of Christ. And that actually means that everybody who follows Christ is called to be in community with others where you serve together and you love one another and you, you do, you, you help each other buff out the rough edges and you make each other better just by being here, right? We grow together, we study together. We spread the gospel together. We minister together. There, there is, in the New Testament, there is not a single concept of a solo Christian. Not a single one. And by the way, if, if you're trying to be, if you've got to say, well, I'm going to be a solo Christian because, you know, I'm the only one thinking straight. I guarantee pretty soon, without the community of God there to sort of buff your edges and keep you grounded, you will end up pretty weird too. Right? Because you need this frustrating, wonderful group of people here to help keep you grounded. I've seen it happen. Uh, finally, number three, the final word is this. It means that God can use even you and me, right? He can use us. If God can use this uh, a lying, murderous rapist like David or, or yeah, or if, you know, if he can use like this fearful guy like Abraham or if God can use this murdering zealot like Paul, or a talking donkey, he can use you and me, right? So praise God. You and I are not too imperfect to become part of the bride of Christ that he's putting together. Um, Because you see, ultimately, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what crimes you committed or what struggles you've been through or the heinous things you've done. Don't let the devil take you out 
as though your sin can compete with what Jesus did. It can't compete. Jesus, what, what he did in terms of, of forgiveness and righteousness, your sin doesn't stand a chance. Your sin doesn't stand a chance. So don't let that take you out of the game. It doesn't matter what's gone on. It doesn't matter what your struggles are, even right now. Because really, here's the thing. It's not about you and me. It's not about you or me. It's about this bride that you and I are a part of, right? And Jesus says he's coming back for a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. And the thing that blows my mind is that that's not contingent on how spotless or wrinkle-free I am, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's about whether the bride, whether I'm going to be part of the bride that is spotless and wrinkle-free, right? The bride is, he's, that's the way he sees the bride. Are you far from perfect, then welcome. This is the perfect place for you. God can use you and God can, can love you. And he wants you part of this. He can use all of us. He loves you just as you are. Now, he loves you also too much to leave you that way. Amen? So yeah, aspire to be all that you can in Christ. Aspire to grow. Because, not, not like so you'll achieve his love, but you'll be happier. I mean, life is better, right? When we allow him to grow us spiritually. Right here and now, God created humanity out of the dust, right? He brought existence out of nothing so he can make something beautiful, even out of my mess and your mess. How? Because that's just who he is. That's what he does. What a God. What a God. I'm blown away sometimes by this Jesus that we serve. So friends, however many missteps and mistakes and messes you and I make, the goal is to remember the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So next time you pull up some article or read another story about how some dumb Christian leader has acted and it makes you ashamed to even be a part of the whole thing or be associated with him, just remember this steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And Christ will come back one day for a glorious bride because his love is what transforms us. He transforms us. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Abba Father, you are beautiful beyond description, Father. You blow me away, Lord. Thank you, God, for being a God who stoops to such magnificent depths to show forth your greatness. And as we leave this place, I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be motivating us and moving us and encouraging us to belong to that tribe, that true church, Lord God, that puts on display the beauty of Christ. And also, Lord God, a people who surrender all of our yucky stuff over to you, Lord God, knowing that you are so wise, you're so supreme, that you can use that as well, Lord God. You can use our imperfections to further your purpose in this world. Lord God, we live to glorify you and show forth your supremacy in how we love one another and how we treat our neighbors. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Be on us, work through us as we leave this place to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name, and the bridezilla of Christ said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Well, our prayer partners are coming forward at this time. Would you all stand to your feet? If there's anything you need prayer for, let these guys pray with you. Uh, it's not the same when we pray. Uh, whatever it is going on in your life, if you want to, if you need a miracle in your life, you have a health 
crisis going on. You need a financial miracle. You need a relational miracle between two people. Or I thank you, uh, God, that you move in all of those areas, Lord God. You're so good. You're so personal. And he wants to do amazing things for you. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, this is a great time to do it. Just come forward and let these wonderful people, they would love to lead you in that next step. We love you so much. Let me bless you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you until we can be together again. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.